Welcome to KYH2O, a podcast about all things water in Kentucky. I'm Carmen Agaritas, an Extension Associate Professor in the Biosystems and Agricultural Engineering Department at the University of Kentucky. And I'm Amanda Gumbert, an Extension Specialist for Water Quality with the University of Kentucky Cooperative Extension Service. Join us as we get our feet wet exploring Kentucky's water resources. You know, we love to go out in the field and look for critters and mostly just get our feet wet. But tell us about your recent field trip. So I went out to Raven Run Nature Sanctuary, which is in Fayette County near the Kentucky River, and I went out with Steve Price, who's an associate professor in the Department of Forestry, and we spent the afternoon uh, in a creek at Raven Run searching for salamanders. We're here at an um, intermittent stream at Raven Run um, in uh, early March, we're going to be looking for salamanders and uh, especially a species called the streamside salamander. Its scientific name is Ambistema barbari. Actually, that second part of the scientific name, barbari, is named after Roger Barber, a University of Kentucky, uh, former University of Kentucky professor. Um, It's a unique animal um, found uh, primarily um, in Kentucky. About half of its global range um, is in is in the state of Kentucky. So we're going to be turning over some large rocks and looking for eggs and adults of this salamander. Raven Run, you called it a nature sanctuary, but it's also part of the Lexington Fayette Urban County Government system of parks, isn't it? It is. It's part of the park system. Uh, People can go out there and hike. Uh, There are uh, park naturalists there that can also offer special programs. So, and and it is a preservation. They do you know, try to work and preserve the area, the natural area. So kind of describe what the stream looked like um, so that we can kind of let our listeners get a a feel for what they're looking at. Um, Lots of rocks, lots of... So Raven Run streams are uh, ones that I point my students to as one of the few reference streams left in Fayette County that's fairly undisturbed by man. Um, it's a beautiful stream. Uh, it's got a slope probably of about 2%. So you see some little riffles and little pools in there. There are lots of trees uh, along the banks that are providing a lot of shade. Lots of leaf litter drops in. And if you sample macroinvertebrates or the, the little bugs living in the water or salamanders, you're going to find it's an extremely healthy stream because of the water quality. The headwaters for most of that area is fairly well protected by the nature preserve. For nature so, sanctuary. So you called it a reference stream. Does that just mean that it's really healthy? So when we think of a uh, reference condition, it's kind of like that ideal condition. So if I were to try to take something that was impacted or impaired, that was a roading stream, for instance, I would say, hmm, what should it look like? And when I say the term reference, that's kind of my best case condition for this current environment. So in this reference stream, you went to look for something pretty specific, though. We did. We wanted to see if we could find salamanders. Oh, I like salamanders. So did you find any? We found lots of salamanders. Um, We found some uh, that were more adult salamanders, and we found lots of eggs from salamanders. Uh, So those were even a few that were about ready to hatch. Salamanders are amphibians, so they're related to frogs, and they have a lizard-like body shape, right? So they have four limbs and a tail, but they don't have scales like a lizard do, so they have smooth skin. And like all amphibians, they require moist environments. They inhabit 
both streams as well as as ponds and forests oftentimes uh, when they're not breeding in these these aquatic habitats. One of the other things about the stream we were on in our field site visit was it's an intermittent stream. So that's something I've actually gone out and used this stream for projects as well. We've done like teacher trainings or, or whatnot, which basically means that stream does not have water flowing in it all year. Uh, when we get into the drier months, like you think uh, later July, August, September, and going into October, the water level gets extremely low just because the water table starts to drop. Um, so people may go out to Raven Run, and if they're going at that time of year, they might not see a lot of water. The days we were out there, it was, you could hear the water. It was really rushing through. Did you go out in the spring to look for salamanders, and is that probably the best time we to went, go? Yeah, we went in the springtime, which... Uh, Towards the end of February, early March time frame, which kind of surprised me is the time to go look for them. Um, but that's the time when a lot of salamanders, especially in the February time frame, have started laying their eggs and they're scurrying about. And it was also a good time to find them. We didn't have a lot of tree cover. You could you could see stuff fairly well. The water was really uh, moving and it's had a, it was cold, so it had a lot of oxygen in it. So it was an environment um, when it was really beneficial for them. You've had a lot of uh, insects in their larval stages, and which is food for the salamanders. So it was, it was a condition which I probably wouldn't consider ideal to live in, but apparently the salamanders really like it. Salamanders are, are pretty tolerant of, of, of cool and, and cold conditions. I mean, obviously, if it was 15 degrees out here, it might be kind of hard to find them. But salamanders don't like it really warm. Like a lot of amphibians, they actually like cooler temperatures because the warmer it is, the more water they, they lose. And so they, um, through evaporative water loss, so they require um, actually cooler temperatures. And especially when it's cool and they're in the water, they're perfectly happy. So I'm always amazed at how early in the spring salamanders, frogs, you know, those kind of animals start to move around. Um, it, it seems like there's always a warm night in January or February and that must be their the sign they're looking for the trigger that says hey it's time to it's it's time to get busy it's spring and and let's go see what we can get into um you were looking for salamanders and so if I'm going to go to a stream like where do I just are they just going to be out and about are they going to be floating around in the water will I be able to see them easily where am I going to look well, according to Steve, um, when we were out there, most of the salamanders we were fine were very camouflaged. So a lot of their skin color matched uh, the leaves or the dark colors of rocks that they weren't easily seen. Um, talking to Steve, if they're very bright, that probably is an indicator that they don't taste so well and is a kind of a warning mechanism to other organisms that if you eat me, I'm probably not going to be too tasty or I might be um, have some sort of poison you're not really going to like, so to stay away. But we had to uh, actually pick up rocks, look in leaf packs. My understanding, too, is that if, if this, the area alongside the streams, where there might be little small pools of water, would be a good place to find them as well. But if you're starting to get into the hot summer months, because these are animals that need a moist environment, you're not going to find them away in dry areas. So... As scientists, when you go out to the field, we kind of use that as slang term um, as it's kind of our going out to our playground, I think. Um, sometimes we take special tools with us. Um, can you tell us what kind of special tools that Steve might have brought with him um, or what he uses when he's out searching for salamanders? When we went on this trip, um, we weren't really trying to do much of a research project, but we actually took something I think a lot of people could probably get themselves. So we took actually a large, uh, what considered like a D-net or a net that he could disturb 
put downstream and disturb these rocks up above and hopefully anything could float down into it. Uh, if you have small children, you know, we've used like aquarium nets. They're small and easy to handle. They would work the same way, but it's really just a net capturing system. The other thing we took a lot of caution with was because these creatures are delicate. You don't want to squeeze them hard and make sure your hands are wet because they do have very uh, sensitive skin that absorbs water. So you don't want to have dry and really um, dirty hands, I think, when you're holding them. Yeah, I think that's a good point to remember that um, I've, I've been out in streams with some young, eager hands, and we get really excited, even those of us who whose hands aren't so young, we get real excited to, to see a, a critter that we're looking for, and we might forget the things that we need to remember, like making sure our hands are wet and that we use gentle hands, and um, also even being gentle with their habitat. Um, because kicking those rocks around, sometimes we can really disturb them. Um, it would be kind of like somebody, I guess, coming into our houses and just starting to thrash around and, you know, kick us out of bed in the middle of the night, right? Yeah, and that's, a, that's I think, a very important point is, is when you go into these systems, it's, it's trying to do minimal disturbance. It's that kind of that whole concept of leave no trace. And so when you go in, you don't want to start throwing rocks out of the stream or or just jumping down banks anywhere is trying to be gentle as you do it because um, we are kind of visitors in their home. And it's really for our safety too. Lots of times rocks and streams are slick and we can injure ourselves too. So I always try to remember to take caution and um, with my footing. And, and also speaking of feet, so if you went and the weather was kind of cool, so what kind of, what kind of, shoes did you wear? So the stream we were on wasn't that deep. So I had uh, what we consider muck boots. So they were just insulated, um, heavier boots that I could wear. They came about mid-calf um, and those work just fine. Uh, other people might go out in waders, especially if they think they might fall uh, or the water's deeper, but those boots were just great for us. If uh, my other thing, I think you make a great point is there were a lot of bedrock where we were at. And uh, bedrock, especially in the summertime, can get algal growth on it and get really slick. So we did have to walk very gingerly across the stream because uh, the water was moving faster. And I did not bring a change of dry clothes. Did you need a change of dry clothes? I did not. Almost did, but I did not. It's always exciting when you get to um, get a little more involved in your work than you think you might. Um, did you find anything else while you were out there? We did find uh, some macroinvertebrates. That's cool. This is a, <gasps> a stone fly a stone here. Fly, yeah. 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 So you can see on this guy that the uh, two these tails. guys have gills too. Yeah, the two tails here. And stone flies are really good indicators of water quality. Yeah. So they're one of the invertebrate um, groups that we look at for high water quality. Um, I believe we found an isopod, which we think of those as sow bugs. So think of the little roly polies in your garden. These look just like it, but they live in the water. Um, we found a few mayflies and other things like that, which are indicators of good water quality. So we were really happy to see to see those. The larvae can get into the groundwater or called stream ecologists call it the hyperreic zone. Yeah. So there's water flowing under here, you know, all year round, but just the surface water is not there. And uh, and so these larvae that take a couple years to go, reach metamorphosis, you know, they'll just be under underground and then. What fills back up in the fall, they'll come back up on the surface. So we just heard Steve mention something about a hyperreic zone, and that's a pretty tough word to even say, much less spell. But um, 
Can you talk to us about what he meant by a hyperreic zone? Yeah, so a hyperreic zone is that area where surface water and groundwater mix together. So we we have a stream, we get water that drains across the land going down the topography towards the stream, and that's going to be our surface water component. But we also have that groundwater that slowly upwells to the stream area. Um, and there's a zone where they mix. It's not a perfect delineated line. And so you can have a hyperreic zone that we consider in the vertical, which could be from, like, say, the stream bed on down, especially if you have, like, a gravel or sand stream. But you also have it in the lateral, which we consider, like, if you looked at the stream banks and going away from it. And those areas are good places where lots of organisms can live because you get a mixing of different water temperatures, different nutrients. Uh, and it's also a good uh, habitat refuge, places so- where they can live and hide. So is that kind of like the water table then, where the water table is in a stream bed that maybe if the stream looks dry, there's still water there, but the, we just can't see the water table? Yeah, it, especially in an intermittent stream. So the water table really it rises and falls depending on the wetness of the watershed around us. So in the summertime, the watershed gets more dry because we don't have as much rain. And so the water table slowly starts to drop down. And then at some point it drops below the bed of the stream, which we call kind of its inverter, its lowest level. In the springtime, we have a lot of water. So the water table starts to really rise on up. So this, all this stuff, all this the hydrology that we've been talking about, it's, it's really important for salamanders and other aquatic life in streams. I know we typically um, talk just really about water quality here, but um, water quality affects so many things. So, um, you know, what, do you, what did you learn on your field trip, I guess, about how all of these uh, pieces of the habitat really impact a salamander? There's a lot that goes with it. So, and you mentioned the hydrology. So we have how much water comes to the stream and how fast it comes. Um, If we're in an urban area where water may come to us really, really fast, it can move so quickly that a lot of those organisms can get washed away. Uh, Water quality is extremely important for salamanders because as we mentioned, um, they breathe through their skin. They absorb a lot that way. So if the water quality is poor, it's it's really affecting them. It's, their, it's how their body breathes and, and everything around them. Um, and the, the other big thing is just what we consider that riparian or streamside area. So the areas we were finding, a lot of these salamanders, keep in mind, had a lot of shade, a lot of trees, and a lot of leaves that would fall in, which would provide uh, food sources for a lot of the bugs that salamanders would actually then eat themselves. So we've learned a lot from your field trip about salamanders. So if our listeners want to learn more about salamanders, do you have some ideas of where they could find more information? Uh, Yeah. So we have a website with this podcast that we will provide information for our listeners to learn about. Uh, Dr. Steve Price with the Department of Forestry also has a website and social media presence that if you're interested in, it's uh, under Price Labs. He has lots of great things like that. And we also have classes at the university for those who are interested in pursuing a career or just learning uh, something new. You've been listening to Carmen Agaritas and Amanda Gumbert. Learn more about water at uky.edu forward slash BAE forward slash KYH2O. Subscribe to hear all episodes of KYH2O.